Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. It's an exciting day on the Need to Know podcast because I've been able to pull together a round table of scholars from our Kennan Institute, which is really the premier Russia studies and Eastern European studies program in D.C., housed within the Wilson Center and directed by Matt Rajansky, who we have with us. And we also have three Kennan scholars, Regina Smith, Stacy Clausen, and Oksana Antonenko. So welcome to the Need to Know podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So what we'll do here is really do kind of a round robin round table. And Matt, I want to start with you because I know we've talked about this before, but honestly, you know, when we think back over the last several years, there's been a narrative about Russia, right? That Russia is a, a geostrategic foe. They do the, the election tampering. They do the cyber hacking. And now we're entering into a new year with a new administration. No more Donald Trump. How should Congress and policymakers, how should they be thinking about Russia right now? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks again for having uh, all of us here, Aaron. Um, I'll just use this chance to, you know, advertise these these three incredible scholars uh, who joined us. Um, and scholars are very much the heart of the Kennan Institute. So I'm I'm much more eager to hear from Regina, Stacy, and Oksana than to talk at you and and uh, the listeners. I'll, I'll simply uh, hit a couple of highlights. Um, you know, number one, uh, Russia is a big country. Uh, with a large population with, in some cases, very advanced um, health infrastructure and, and governance infrastructure, in some cases, uh, you know, very, very inadequate. Um, and, and especially with widespread uh, and uh, low population rural areas, Russia has huge, huge challenges around the pandemic. Um, you will have heard, of course, about the, the Sputnik V vaccine, you know, supposedly the first to be registered in the world, although there's a, a lot of artificiality to that because they were, you know, not yet at, at uh, large clinical trials. Um, so Russia has been basically on the same timeline, I would say, as most of the developed world in terms of combating the pandemic. Um, but at this point, uh, the results also look, frankly, pretty similar, uh, in some cases worse, in some cases better. Um, but it is an enormous challenge, it, just as it has been, I think it's fair to say, um, a, a huge challenge with political repercussions in the United States. Uh, it has been that in Russia, and I think the question remains open since there are elections this year in Russia, uh, what it will mean for politics in Russia. Of course, elections in Russia are not the same as elections in the United States that that point should be made. Um, there's an economic crisis underway in Russia, driven in part by the pandemic and in part by years of stagnating real incomes. I think that's a huge factor to pay attention to. Recall that, of course, Putin's uh, big achievement in 20 years in power was to kind of uh, end the economic, the prolonged economic crisis of the 1990s and kind of, you know, translate high energy prices into increased living standards for Russians. That story is over. It doesn't have a lot of momentum left to it. Uh, and then, you know, to, to take on your specific point, which is, I think, a very important one, 
uh, Aaron, about, um, you know, where is the opportunity with Russia? Well, you know, we're already seeing that uh, there is an opportunity to just do the low-hanging fruit that has been ignored. You know, extending the New START uh, arms control treaty is vitally important, and it is happening now. Uh, and, you know, it takes two to tango. You can't do that without the willingness of the Russian side to do it, and, and thankfully they're, they're willing. But, you know, there's, there's more work ahead of that. There are many other domains where converting threats into management of threats at a minimum and maybe, you know, actual uh, progress, stability, conflict resolution, you know, might be possible if you look across the regional uh, theaters where Russia is currently causing problems for U.S. national interests, you know, perhaps negotiating more effectively with Russia, having a better toolkit, et cetera, could, could lead to progress. But the last point I want to make is that I think there's another side to the Russia threat narrative. Um, it's very real uh, across a number of domains, not just regional theaters, but you look at space, uh, you look at uh, cyber, you look at the Arctic, you look at even you know biological and chemical, uh, where Russia is clearly a very potent force and right now is a threat and poses threats and challenges. But those same capabilities, a lot of people talk about uh, you know, the Russian people in this sort of whimsical way of like, we should have a relationship with the Russian people and their future and we care about them. And the thing is, we do, right? There are 150 million of them, plus many, many of them living outside the borders uh, of the Russian Federation. Um, but these vast capacities of Russia as such, or the Russian nation, or the Russian country, uh, are also important, not just Russia's oil and gas. Russia's ability to be a player in these new domains uh, and in domains of global importance like climate change, uh, one that's very much uh, in focus today. I think that's where the opportunity set lies. These are net positives uh, potentially in the future. So you see that maybe getting past the narrative of the last four years that there's actually an opening that could be happening with Russia? Is that what you're thinking? Well, I think it's 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 early to make a read on the relationship as, as such. But if you think longer term um, about dealing with Russia, not just as dealing with Putin, uh, but if you think about dealing with Russia uh, to exclude the possibility of progress, I think would be uh, not only wrong, but bad policy. Interesting. So I, I want to turn then to uh, Regina Smith, who's a Kennan scholar and also of Indiana University at Bloomington. Uh, Regina, you and I have, have chatted before about some of these issues, and I think one of the things that has really grabbed the West's attention is the situation with Alexei Navalny. And you're really an expert on this situation with, with uh, fledgling democracies and social protest movements in Eastern Europe. What's going on with Alexei Navalny? He's back in Russia, uh, arrested again. Stepping back from, I guess, the media narrative of here's a guy who's opposed to Putin, what should we be tracking here? Thanks, Aaron. The first thing I want to do is, is sort of underscore Matt's point about the complexity of Russian society and Russian politics right now. So we often don't look at Russia as having politics. Putin is in charge. He uses coercive forces to stay in charge. Elections don't matter. And street protests are trivial. And I think what we're seeing right now uh, with Navalny's return is uh, a challenge both to Putin's regime, but our thinking about Russian foreign policy, how the U.S. deals with Russia. Because here we have uh, an unexpected, large and sudden emergence of politics onto the stage. And Matt mentioned that elections are coming. 
And while these protests are relatively small compared to Russian population, even in these cities, they're unique because they're spread across the Federation and they're unique because they combine economic, political grievances together for the first time. They're not entirely about Alexei Navalny, but they certainly have elevated Navalny's popularity and visibility along with his Putin palace tape. And they've raised this new narrative in Russian politics that links state corruption to the quality of everyday life directly. And this has been Navalny's power and this is what Navalny's bringing. And I think for the US, what's important now is to think about how to respond Uh, Sanctions are a tool of trying to uh, sow divisions within the Russian elite to get the Russian elite to break from Putin. And so far that hasn't worked in part because they've been loosely enforced and there are exceptions as with so like Deripaska, but also because the elite have nowhere else to go. The costs have to be extraordinarily high. And so I think the challenge here might be to get beyond the partisan talk of sanctions and Russia being good or bad and think about uh, anti-corruption, Russia as part of a global anti-corruption fight in which the US has powerful tools at its disposal that it could use. When we look at uh, the situation of Alexei Navalny and him going back to Russia, it seems like with the way that the Russians deal with their opposition it's not stalin-esque in that people are just disappeared and you never see them again but it seems to be this revolving door of arrest and release and home arrest home confinement and freedom uh explain what the ups and downs of how russia and putin in particular i suppose deals with opposition forces like this So the Russian government is very worried about creating martyrs to an opposition regime. Uh, Navalny is not very popular Uh, in general. I think his popularity has been raised to a sort of all-time high of 20%. But that's a very significant number in, in this system because it means that he can challenge the Putin majority on every front. What I think about uh, the strategy is to contain rather than uh, exacerbate problems. And so they've tried to neutralize Navalny without making him a symbol of broader protest. So I think the most important point here is that Russia didn't want Navalny to return. And they did everything they could to dissuade him from returning, instituting new policies, uh, new charges, uh, issuing an arrest. Navalny was two days away from from completing his house arrest term when they violated his house arrest and threatened him with a full three and a half year jail term. And nonetheless, Navalny returned. And so, and then called for protest and then protest happened. And so I think what the government is trying to do is neutralize, 
without appearing to be like Belarusia, without appearing to be as coercive, which is a dangerous thought that redounds through public opinion. Russians are, uh, often say, my friends often say, we're not Belarusia, it's not that bad. So, so there's a line that the government is working walking and how they deal with the opposition and Navalny in particular. So it's interesting, the 20% within Russia, while I, like you say, that is pretty high for that particular system, it would seem that he's more popular outside of Russia than he is inside of Russia. So this is, this is the constant contestation about Navalny. Russians like to say that the West is obsessed with Navalny and that he's not that important in Russia. And as a man, as a charismatic figure, up until this point, that has been largely true. But the challenge of Navalny to Putinism, to the Putin system, is outsized compared to his challenge as an individual charismatic leader. And his ability to link elections and protests, to continuously disrupt the system, to come up with new innovative ways of mobilizing people, of reframing political debate and challenging the regime, even in very tightly controlled elections, continues. And that's what he's doing right now. I want to turn now to Stacey Clausen of the Cannon Institute as a scholar, but also of the National Intelligence University. Stacey, you and I have talked before about uh, Russia's foreign policy, particularly how it relates to their relationship with China. I'm interested, though, I mean, Russia's foreign policy obviously is bigger than the United States. It's bigger than China. And, you know, with the situation with COVID that Matt brought up and, and some of these other challenges in the world, yeah, it's a big world out there and Russia is trying to play in it. So as we stand here at the beginning of 2021, what do you see as the goals of Russian foreign policy? Sure. Well, thank you for having me on again, Aaron. And, um, you know, I'll just let my fellow congressional uh, staff know that um, I'm just speaking on behalf of my own today and, and not on behalf of the U.S. government. You know, my research in this area um, kind of parallels the domestic track that Regina was speaking about because Putin's foreign policy calculus is filled with risk. And what's interesting is I think where he is grappling on the domestic level with kind of macroeconomic stability versus sort of socioeconomic uh, stability. Um, in the foreign policy realm, it's similar. When he's calculating that risk, you have to see that early on, I think when things were much sunnier in Russia, he was willing to take more risk. And the Russian regime in general was willing, government was willing to take more risk. And you can see that in Georgia, Ukraine, Syria, the 2016 US presidential election. But more recently, the Russian government's been much more calculating, much more careful, much more sort of, I wouldn't say risk adverse, but more managing risk when we talk, when we look at Belarus or Nagorno-Karabakh or perhaps the 2020 U.S. election. Um, but, and, I, and I wonder on our end, you know, what we're going to do with, I mean, Matt mentioned the threat narrative, um, the discourse. It certainly plays a very important role in our relations, uh, more than we understand. You know, that, that threat and narrative, um, Trump sort of used, President Trump's administration used the near-peer competitor 
right? The the and and we were involved in great power politics. And there's been some call recently to kind of maybe rethink that. Um, I know the Biden team has labeled Russia declining power that is an opponent. But nevertheless, um, Russia absolutely um, combines kind of military, business, foreign affairs, and information to shape an environment to its favor. Um, and there's been a slew of articles recently by American academics that's saying that we cannot count Russia out. Um, now, historically, some would argue that when America has been down, then the Soviet Union um, has tended to retract for a while. Uh, we can think of the Watergate period, for example, particularly on information operations. And the argument goes that right now Russia may have no need uh, to use these malign influence tools um, in the West, including in Europe. But other argues that it's not the 1970s, you know, that Russia has experienced the end of the Cold War and they're not gonna make that mistake again. Um, so what I would caution maybe is that um, both sides are likely going to, to, to increase the deterrence mechanisms, right? There's a lot of talk about deterrence, particularly from the new administration um, to increase threat perception. Um, as we pursue greater security on both sides, uh, Russia and the United States. But th this could raise threat levels, right? It could escalate tensions. Oftentimes what you feel is a deterrent mechanism is seen by the other um, as offensive. Um, and, you know, in the past, we could rely on kind of guardrails. We could rely on the defined parameters of, of our bipolar relationship. Um, and, and, but, but we don't have that at the moment. Um, and so it's gonna be very interesting to watch where this threat narrative goes and, and how we react on both sides. That's interesting what you say about, you know, kind of reaching the nadir of our own level of support from within. Well, Russia doesn't really need to conduct any misinformation and, and really doesn't have to bother us that much. And that's interesting to the Watergate period. But then you look at this current period we've got right now. Uh, we've seen uh, while we've dealt with some of these challenges within our borders, we've also had the challenge of a cyber hack, which was blamed on Russia, and we covered here on the podcast a few weeks ago. Uh, so how does that fit into Russia's foreign policy and how they are dealing with the world? Yeah, this is a, um, this is a tool that's been an, an issue, obviously, that's been um, front and center and yet left unaddressed in a way, in an odd way between the U.S. and Russia. It's sort of like the, you know, the elephant in the room, as we say. Um, and my knowledge of, of cyber um, is that we just haven't been able to agree with Russia on the basics. But what are we talking about when we talk about Russia? You know, is it is it information operations? Is it the more or is it the more technical infrastructure issues? Uh, so is it, you know, domain issues? Is it psychological um, sustained operations? Um, and 
we know that um, we've had a dialogue with Russia, or attempted to have a dialogue in the Obama administration. Um, there was a bilateral agreement, kind of confidence security building measures um, that we had a direct communications. We had a hotline between the White House and the Kremlin to prevent escalation of an attack. We had uh, technical experts beginning to be linked up both bilaterally and also at the UN level. And there were routine exchanges to divert attacks. And all that stopped pretty much in 2014, except the hotline um, due to um, the sanctions. And President Putin suggested several times to President Trump to start a bilateral dialogue on cyber. Um, and Putin has really interestingly made recent statements, a, a kind of normative efforts that should happen between the US and Russia, like designating no-go zones or, um, you know, what is proper versus proper in cyber. Um, but I think critically, um, what Dmitry Trenin and others have pointed out is that if Russia doesn't admit um, or apologize to the United States for its activities, the perception is that dialogue uh, may not be, you know, forthright. And I think um, the biggest unknown here is that if you can't name it, how do you agree to ban it? Um, so definitely it'll be an ongoing complex issue that will complicate a lot of what we attempt to achieve. I'm also happy to have back Oksana Antonenko, who, gosh, it seems like a long time ago, Oksana, but you helped us out with a congressional briefing that we did on the OPEC situation at the beginning of the pandemic, the oil production situation uh, with Russia and OPEC. And you cover a lot of uh, Russian economic issues. So I want to talk to you about sanctions, which is really the tool in the toolbox that Congress keeps going back to. And from where you sit, is this something that we will continue to see uh, over the next several years and through a Biden administration? And also, the ultimate question, is it working? Glad to, to join you again from the other side of the Atlantic, from Cambridge in the UK. Um, I just uh, want to kind of start by maybe contextualizing your question, a little bit following up on what Matt was saying, was saying at the beginning, maybe kind of looking at where Russia is at the moment with the pandemic. I think we need to rem remember that Russia has experienced multiple crises this year, you know, much more than many other countries uh, that are, you know, struggling with COVID uh, on itself, you know, is a challenge. But of course, Russia faced this uh, uh, unprecedented uh, crisis over the drop in oil price, as we discussed in the past, which had been, you know, profoundly impacting her ability to, um, uh, you know, put together a, a package of uh, economic measures to respond to COVID. And of course, you know, it had to then accept a very substantial reduction in its oil production, uh, which impacts, you know, continues to impact in, the, in a major way the kind of revenues that it is receiving, you know, uh, into its budget, you know, reminding that still the, the large share uh, uh, of its uh, uh, revenues uh, coming from export of oil and gas uh, internationally. Um, uh, then uh, the second crisis, of course, is COVID itself. You know, Matt, uh, you know, reminded us that Russia is a large country, and we have, of course, different pockets uh, 
in, in some areas like Moscow, I think the COVID is uh, now increasingly under control and there is a very good you know, medical system in place and vaccine is, Russian vaccine is being administered. But the large parts of the country uh, have very poor medical system and is really struggling to contain um, and also to implement those uh, uh, containment measures that are able to really bring the situation under control. And the third crisis, which we should not ignore, is the fact that you know, a very large part of the Russian private sector continues to exist in, in, in a shadow economy. Uh, and uh, that economy did not receive almost any support from the state by definition because it is in the shade. So a lot of private sector entrepreneurs that have already been under a lot of pressure before as the Russian economy continues to be dominated by the state has really suffered tremendously during the last year. And many of them are unlikely to survive. You know, the various Russian um, uh, business association, you know, estimate that, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of Russian companies, small business companies uh, uh, have already closed down and, and more to follow. Uh, so we really have seen kind of an impact, which is uh, really across the board, uh, across the society. And I think this is also maybe what is fueling, you know, what Regina was talking about, this kind of unprecedented wave of uh, dissatisfaction uh, with the uh, uh, authorities and, and, and Kremlin in particular, because, uh, you know, it is now increasingly pers personified you know, because the policy is now so centralized in the hands of kind of one man uh, rather than institutions. Um, uh, so the ratings of the uh, authorities are very low, they're lower than they've been for a very long time. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, on top of that, of course, the younger generation of Russians that have uh, for a long time been, you know, in a different sort of wavelength from, uh, um, uh, you know, other parts of the societies because they are receiving the information from the internet, they understand the processes inside Russia in a different way. They're the ones who really have been affected uh, hugely by COVID crisis and economic crisis. And they really even less than before see their future in Russia, you know, as a successful future to which they can aspire. And those are precisely the people who are going into the streets. Um, so it is a complexity that I think policymakers in the United States have to understand. Now, going to your question about sanctions. Um, yes, you are right. I think sanctions have been an instrument of choice, not only in the United States, but also in other countries here in Europe, for example. And to a large extent, it is also because it is a powerful signal. Uh, the policymakers want to signal that they really do not accept, you know, what Russia has been doing, for example, in Ukraine in 2014 with annexation of Crimea, uh, what it is doing now increasingly at home, such as using the uh, chemical weapons against, against its opposition. Uh, but at the same time, it is also an, uh, a recognition that actually the Western countries have very few other instruments effectively to influence Russian policy. So uh, if the, to the extent that the sanctions have been uh, primarily an instrument uh, that was designed to change Russia's immediate behavior, it has not been successful. Uh, we have not really seen a major change in Russian policies of Ukraine, for example, the conflict still raging in, in, in Donbass, and we are very far from implementation of the Minsk agreements. We have not really seen you know, substantial uh, liberalization domestically in response to those sanctions, or nor did we see, as Regina mentioned, you know, a substantial split within the political circles and elites around Putin you know, uh, as a result of sanctions, uh, if, if, if any, you know, some many of the elites now in the situation of the, you know, more challenging economic environment are more dependent on favors, economic favors from, from the Kremlin to survive. 
Um, uh, but at the same time, of course, if we look at the sanctions in a longer term perspective, you know, they have already had a very substantial influence because they deterred a lot of foreign investment into Russia. Even before the COVID crisis, Russia's economy had been growing very uh, slowly, you know, much slower than it should have been growing, given that the oil price had been relatively high before the crisis. Uh, it also, as Matt mentioned, you know, had experienced the four years of the uh, falling real incomes, you know, very much impacting this kind of fundamental social contract uh, between the uh, Kremlin and the population that, you know, they kind of support this limited freedoms in exchange for rising living standards. In fact, we've seen falling living standards for now four years. And of course, Russia is now increasingly disconnected from the global economy. It is not integrated into global supply chains. It is not integrated into global technology uh, uh, development. It is not now integrated, for example, into the space cooperation, which was so effective between the United States and Russia. And it is increasingly pushed towards being dependent economically on China. And China, although have not been providing Russia with as much economic assistant, assistance as Russia was expecting uh, initially, it is actually stepping up its engagement with Russia across all sorts of areas, including in the energy sector, now space cooperation, and increasingly in the military sphere as well. So Russia is now supplying China with military technology in exchange for China increasingly supplementing Europeans and, and Americans, but Europeans in particular, with supplying technology in other sectors. So we see here kind of different impacts, you know, both potentially uh, favorable to the objectives of, uh, uh, you know, policymakers that are applying sanctions by, you know, kind of reducing the, uh, the means that Russia can deploy in support of its foreign policy uh, activities, but at the same time also driving Russia and China closer together and really, you know, undermining uh, and weakening the uh, ability, uh, you know, of the more independent from the state part of the Russian society, the private sector, the younger generation, uh, you know, to develop and to become a, a powerful force in their own right. And, and as a result, instability in Russia is continuing and likely to continue in the future. But I think final thought about it. I mean, if we as policymakers in the West expect that these protests are going to deliver something in the short term, I think we ought to look at what's happening in the rest of the world. You know, look at Hong Kong, where we've seen millions of people protesting in the streets and, and we haven't really seen very much, you know, happening in terms of the change to the regime. Look at Belarus, you know, look at Venezuela. So it is a long-term process and a long journey. So, you know, the idea that Russia, because it is seeing now a wave of protests, is going to undergo substantial political change in the short term, I think is something which is very unlikely to materialize. And what we are likely to see, more repression, more squeezing out of private sector from the Russian economy, and more kind of uh, wage being driven between Russia and the West. Well, that's really proof of the theory that you press on one end of the balloon, the other end is going to get bigger, right? And I think a lot of policymakers will probably be alarmed at the pushing Russia into the arms of China. So that's something to certainly keep a watch on. Uh, I want to, maybe we could just kind of do a lightning round going around the table here of each one of you and your thoughts of what really to be watching out for on the horizon. Matt, you want to go first? Well, I think there's one overarching challenge for policymakers, you know, whether it's legislative or executive branch uh, in the United States, and to some extent for, for any of Russia's uh, partners, which is that Kremlin decision making appears to be a black box. There are a number of different explanatory frameworks that you could try to graft onto what Russia does. There's the kind of timeless Russian 
national interest framework. There's the, you know, Putin regime survival. Everything is about, uh, you know, in, in reducing risks to Putin and his power. Uh, and, and there is, of course, the kind of, um, you know, clan-based interests within the system. And, you know, uh, Putin is the arbiter among these different competing interests. But, you know, I, I, I have the privilege of going first here. So I would, you know, piggyback on a question and ask my colleagues who I know watch this very closely, you know, what are the indicators for each of the issues that you have talked about? You know, what are the signs that we should be looking for in the fairly near term that anything is changing? Uh, because from, from a policy perspective, whether you're trying to apply pressure in order to change Russia's calculus and its behavior, uh, or whether you're trying to apply sunshine uh, and perhaps attract Russia away from China or whatever it may be, you know, you've got to look for some indicator that the policy is working because at a minimum, if you don't have that evidence, you're going to kind of lose the debate internally uh, on our side as to what to do next. So I'd leave that as a question mark. Regina, how would you pick up that question of what's on the horizon? So there are two questions on the table. In answer to your question, I would have said climate change. That climate uh, co-op Climate provides a place of potential cooperation between Russia and the West. Putin is increasingly pointed to climate. There are lots of regions in Russia that are already affected by uh, climate change effects. And uh, it's a place where I think there might be a growing opportunity for Russia and the West. Uh, in terms of Matt's question, I think it's important to underscore uh, what Oksana has already said, which is that both Russia, uh, Russian government and Navalny are playing long games, right? I think both of them are recognizing that nothing uh, is likely to change um, in, the, in the short term, although uncertainty continues to increase, right? And this is something, again, that we've talked about today. The, this regime does not like uncertainty and uncertainty is increasing. So one indication would be to start to look for how the Kremlin's managing the fall cycle of elections in September, leading up to the national parliamentary elections in December. And here, I think the challenge is going to be to create illusions of responsiveness and competition in the regime. We're already seeing new political parties emerge out of the Kremlin to draw votes and find a new way of constructing majorities in the face of the declining popularity of the state party, United Russia. So I'm looking at the tactics that the regime is, is uh, using to maintain electoral control and to sustain majorities in legislatures around Russia. Very interesting. And Stacy, where do you see this going? Yeah, I think um, to play off something Oksana said at the end there, um, you know, uh, let's assume for a moment that the system is sort of restructuring or continuing to structure into, uh, you know, bipolarity between the, the uh, bipolar competition between the U.S. and China. And I think this places Russia in a very compromising position, right? Because, you know, uh, Russian uh, foreign policy has sort of promulgated this idea that we're in a polycentric world that, that um, and that Russia is one of the big players. And I think one of the biggest concerns for Russian strategists is foremost is to stay relevant. How do you stay relevant um, on most issues? And 
I think one of the things that Russian experts uh, have said their policy should not do under any circumstances is encourage a balance of power dynamic between the US and China that leaves Russia out. And so I'm kind of starting to think uh, about how Russia will manage the US-China competitive relationship and what indicators I can look for, we can look for, as they try to manage that competitive relationship. Um, you know, first and foremost, where will that competitive relationship go? No one knows. Uh, and, and least of all, probably US and China. But um, Russia certainly is likely thinking about, you know, will it try to balance on certain issues? Um, Will it sort of bandwagon where it chooses one um, against the other? And I think the biggest thing that we should be looking for are wedge issues, like where the U.S. could, could um, where Russia could play the U.S. against China. So it, it, it's obvious that it could have a hand in that in the Arctic, in, in perhaps um, Central Asia. But most concerning is probably the Indo-Pacific. Um, and, and so, um, you know, um, and, and I think those of us that are looking for signs that Russia would bandwagon with the U S against China are looking for sort of, uh, that may not, it may not come to be. And so, um, and so that, that's probably the things that I, I would look out for. And Oksana, back to you, and I would probably, as far as the on the horizon question, you with the economics, it's probably the hardest question to answer with the uncertainties of COVID and vaccinations and everything else. But uh, so what do you what do you see that people should be looking for? Well, I mean, from my point of view, I think the the kind of the Western policy has uh, so far failed and uh, and continues to fail on this on two fronts, which are you know, both kind of interconnected, but important. The first one, I think we ought to be watching quite carefully how domestic political and economic challenges are translated into Russia's willingness uh, to act uh, uh, in a kind of unilateralist and somewhat unpredictable manner uh, uh, externally and internationally. We've seen, of course, in, in Ukraine and, uh, and in other cases in, in Georgia before, um, you know, Russia, uh, Russian leadership, you know, uh, tend taking decisions to uh, intervene uh, externally uh, at a time when it feels particularly squeezed internally. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we need to put in place quite effective deterrence mechanism to make sure that this kind of intervention doesn't get out of hand. And given that we do not at the moment have a very effective system of uh, sort of incident management and uh, institutional cooperation, we need to find a way to put that in place uh, together with restoring now under the Biden administration, the transatlantic um, uh, dialogue and cooperation on Russia policy uh, in a much more systematic uh, manner that uh, have been you know, suffering for a number of years now. And the second point for me, which is even more important, I think, is to kind of offer a vision uh, of uh, what a different relationship with Russia could look like. Uh, at the moment, you know, we do not really go further than uh, just saying, well, if, if, if Putin is no longer in the Kremlin, I think the Russia will go back to the fold of, uh, you know, the, the Western international community, which we know, of course, is not going to be easy or going to be the case because Russia today is very different from Russia 
uh, in, say, 2012 or 2014. Um, uh, and I think that is also partly a challenge for Mr. Navalny and his uh, 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 sort of people around him um, to really provide a vision, a very detailed and clear vision, you know, of what, uh, you know, a more cooperative policy with Russia could look like. And in particular, what it could look like for the younger generation, for the people who, you know, aspire to be part of the international scientific, technological, uh, you know, and other economic and business, you know, elite and, 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 and development. Um, and what is a kind of relationship with the West, which could balance, you know, what is already becoming, in my view, almost irresistible gravitational pull of Russia drifting towards China uh, economically and increasingly geopolitically and technologically for sure. You know, and we have so far failed to produce that kind of vision. And I, I dare I would even say that very few people are working on it at the moment. And I, and I really think that we need to be doing that. Well, I think for the policymakers listening, I think that the Russia-China dynamic is certainly something that would be concerning to policymakers and it's good to keep on the horizon. I'm always thrilled to be able to showcase the talent that we have within the Kennan Institute. Uh, you guys have always been very generous with your time on this podcast, and I think it's very useful for the, the listeners to be able to hear from the diverse array of expertise that we get through the Kennan Institute. So Matt Rajansky, Regina Smith, Stacey Klassen, Oksana Antonenko, thank you so much for joining us yet again on the podcast. Thank you, Aaron, and thank Thanks, all of you. Thanks, Aaron. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Enjoyed it. If you like this episode and you want to hear more from the Kennan Institute, you need to check out Russia File and Kennan X. Both are available wherever you get podcasts. We also have an amazing digital archive at the Wilson Center. And our folks in our history and public policy program have started digging into it and putting it into podcasts in International History Declassified. So be sure to check those out anywhere you get your podcasts.